I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore America's rich history and thought leadership through interviews with leading authors. Today, I interviewed historian Ted Widmer, author of the new book, Lincoln on the Verge, 13 Days to Washington, which came out on April 7, 2020. I had the privilege of reviewing this book for the Washington Independent Review of Books. Enjoy. Okay, what a great thrill it is to be with Ted Widmer talking about his wonderful new book, Lincoln on the Verge, 13 Days to Washington. And Ted, for every author of a history book, you always wonder, how'd you get the idea? So how did you seize on the idea of picking the narrow time window between Lincoln's election in November 1860 and his inauguration in March 1861 as the subject for your new book. Well, thank you, Talmadge. It's nice to talk to you. Um, I've liked Lincoln as long as I can remember since I was a little kid, and I didn't really understand even who he was or what the Civil War was. I just liked him. There's something in his kindly face, I think, that drew me in. And I remember visiting the Lincoln Memorial like a lot of us do when we're kids and, and had a strong impact on me. And then I also liked trains. And so I figured out here was a way to write about both things. That probably wouldn't have been enough on its own, but then as I studied the period, I thought, wow, there's so much going on for Lincoln in, in this two-week span. I mean, you're right. It's, it's from the election in November all the way to his inauguration in March, but these two weeks are really difficult for him. And he's moving, he's on this train, seeing hundreds of thousands of people every day and making big decisions and figuring out how to speak to the American people. And I just thought, this is a fascinating story. So that, that's how I got there. Well, your book is uh, exhaustively researched uh, based on the notes in the back and the bibliography and so forth. So I'm curious as you laid out the strategy for writing this book, what did you determine had to be the most important aspects of your research in order to accomplish your objective of being able to tell this story fully supported? Well, I did really do exhaustive research. I'm glad you can tell in a, in a good way by, by looking in the bibliography. I, I don't want readers to see it in a bad way, meaning it's it's too heavy in the in the story because I, I I want there to be a good story too, but I I really read a lot um, and I I think what may have been new was I read very deeply in the local newspapers I, I I was able to get a lot of newspapers online thanks to a it's a free database called Chronicling America that has hundreds of American newspapers from small towns in the 19th century. And, I just really read through that very carefully and in every small town he went through, and he went through hundreds of towns on his trip, this was the biggest news story for a long time, maybe ever, in a town's history. So people wanted to describe him. What did he look like? What did he say? What was the reception like? And, and so I spent a lot of time reading about local news. 
Well, now, as you mentioned a minute ago, you've loved Lincoln basically your whole life. And so going into the uh, research and writing this book, you obviously knew a great deal about him, I'm sure. But what was the most important thing you learned about Abraham Lincoln from your research on this book that you did not know before you began working on it? Well, that's a great question. Um, I had a, I mean, I, I did know most of the issues before I started the book, but I was still shocked at how much pressure was on him every day. Um, big political pressures, in, including within his own party. Within the Republican Party, it was not a very united party. It was a, quite a new party, and um, he had pressures from some parts of his party to be much more outspoken on, on slavery and huge pressures from other parts of the party to, to, to be more quiet and to just try to keep the middle states in the country and just get to Washington in, in, in one piece. So uh, the party was not really uh, a, a very united party, and that made life complicated for him. The journey was incredibly difficult in other ways. He lost his speech at one stop uh, in Indianapolis, his son put it in a took took the bag that held the speech and put it in a hotel baggage room, and, and Lincoln was terrified that he would lose the only copy he had of his inaugural address. There are a lot of other problems on the trip where um, receptions broke down, or he was in physical danger because too many people were trying to get at him as he came through a, a room of some kind. So. He really was walking along a knife's edge throughout the whole journey, and and I came away from this research thinking it was something of a miracle that he made it to Washington alive. Now, obviously, on a trip that lasts any length, uh, it's very easy to think in terms, of, particularly when it's a circuitous route, to think of such a trip as an odyssey. And every one of your chapters begins with a short passage from Homer's The Odyssey that has perfect application to what's about to happen to Lincoln in the coming chapter. So where did you get the idea to use Homer's words uh, to start each of your chapters? Well, that's a good question, too. And I think some readers are going to like that. I thought it was interesting. And the trip does resemble an odyssey for a few reasons I can go into, but I I also think some readers are probably going to find it off topic and I'm, I, you know, I'm sorry to them because I want the focus to be on Lincoln, but the story of a man struggling against adversity, trying to get to a very distant destination and in a way to fix a lot of problems and reunite a family. And by that, I mean the national family, the, the South and the middle States and the North it began to feel like a powerful comparison to me. And I, I had a grandfather who used to read the Odyssey to me. So I'm not a classics major. You know, I, I don't know the classics as well as someone who did major in it, but I, I have always liked the story of this man going a long way and fighting against incredible adversity in, in the case of the Odyssey to get to find his wife and son He's been separated from them. He's, he's a, a war veteran, basically, coming back to find his wife and son. Lincoln's story is a little different. He's traveling with his wife and children, but he's trying to reunite the national family. So I felt the parallel was 
was pretty interesting, and I I didn't hit it too hard. I just put those those quotes at the beginning of each chapter, and I'm I'm so glad you noticed that. Well, Lincoln's predecessor as president of the United States was James Buchanan, and he was preceded by Franklin Pierce, and Pierce was preceded by Millard Fillmore. And they are regarded as among the three worst presidents in American history. So, so if we had had stronger presidents in the decade before Lincoln took over, do you think it's possible that the Civil War could have been avoided? That's a really good question, too. It's a, it's a hard question. Um, I want to say yes. I think there was something in those three presidents that wasn't working very well. And we know from Lincoln's example that a good president could, could make a big difference. And there were people who ran and lost in some of those cases. I, I came away from this research thinking Winfield Scott was a very impressive guy. He's a Virginian. He's a Southerner, but he loves the Union, and he supports Lincoln. He doesn't go with the South. Um, he's the commander-in-chief of United States Army, and he supports Lincoln and not the um, not the Confederacy. And he he had run for president, um, but the prob there were a lot of problems in the earlier 1850s. The um, the Democratic Party was usually the winning party just about all of those years, and it was frozen on the topic of slavery. It was not willing to take a very courageous stand against the um, pro prohibiting the extension of slavery. And that, that was really the, the controversial issue. For most people, including for Lincoln, it was not whether to eliminate slavery where it existed. Lincoln did not say that in 1860. But a growing number of people just didn't want to see it continue out west. It, it, they didn't want to see all this empty land or land. I mean, it wasn't entirely empty because Native Americans lived there, but they didn't want to see new states made that had uh, slavery as the basis of the economy. And the Democratic Party never stopped that. And so people were tired of that party, basically. And it fell apart. It split in two in 1860. And then Lincoln comes along as the standard bearer for a new party, the Republican Party, and it all shifted a lot in that year, not only with his election, but really suddenly the Republican Party is, is quite powerful for the first time. And so it, all of politics wasn't really working, and it you know, actually feels a bit like it, it does now, where neither party is in an, in an entirely happy place, and I think that was true in the 1850s too. Now, Ted, one of the things that makes Lincoln so special to us lovers of history is that he was a great student of history, uh, especially of the life of George Washington and the circumstances that led to the writing of the Declaration of Independence. So how did Lincoln's knowledge of history not only edify him, but actually help him chart his leadership course before and during his presidency? Well, that's a great question, Talmadge. He, he did love history, and even though he grew up in a place without very many books, the famous log cabin, we know that he had biographies of George Washington there, and he loved them. He, 
read about Washington whenever he had the chance and really knew a lot about George Washington, including his military career in the American Revolution. And throughout the 13-day train trip, he's talking about Washington all the time. He mentions him in his farewell address at Springfield, and then over and over on the journey saying, the challenge before me is as great as before any president since George Washington. And when it comes to New Jersey, that becomes really quite relevant because it was um, in New Jersey where, where Washington crossed the Delaware to take Trenton from the Hessians. And so Lincoln really goes into a very deep memory of Washington. And there's still living American veterans of the revolution uh, alive in 1861. So he's really going into some important emotional territory and then, uh, as you said, he, he also loved the Declaration of Independence, and that's a very specific thing to talk about. And it really worked well for Lincoln because it was the document that created the country, and it was created by Southerners and Northerners working together, but it also had that beautiful language about human rights in the middle of it, in, in the second paragraph, the famous lines about we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And for Lincoln, that was a very important language about what it means to be American, that we, we help each other. We recognize the dignity inside each human being. And it was a way of being anti-slavery without using the word slavery. And it was just very good, very good politics for him and, and very beautiful um, rhetoric. Now, you said earlier that growing up you loved both Lincoln and trains. And in the book, in the book you compare the impact of trains on American transportation in the 19th century to one of Lincoln's most important political talents, and that is that the trains and Lincoln were both levelers. So ex- exactly. expand upon that metaphor and the relationship between trains and Lincoln? Well, I did a, a lot of research on trains, as, as you noticed, and filled up most of a chapter, chapter three, with, with the story of how trains were changing America. And they were changing America in a lot of very good ways, I, I argued. They were helpful for people who wanted to move out to the West, which was a lot of people. They were helpful to immigrants coming over from Europe who, who wanted to start new farms or, or, or move into small towns. Um, they were helpful for people who wanted new kinds of um, things around the house, new kinds of clothing or objects in the house that trains could deliver. And they were you know, unbelievable agents of modernization for a country that was growing modern very, very fast. So trains were really great for a lot of people in the United States of America, and that may come as a surprise to to people who've read histories of all the um, ways in which railroad corporations later in our history acted selfishly or bought huge amounts of land or didn't treat their own workers very well or went through Native American lands without respecting the tribes. I mean, there's another story of how trains 
became extremely powerful and they were good lobbyists in Washington. But I argue something very different, which is at the beginning of the story of the railroad, they they were a, a really important way to get Americans moving out west to help get people the things they need, food supplies, building supplies, all the things that anyone would need to start a town. And there was a kind of leveling going on that these towns were pretty flat. I mean, a railroad likes a flat surface to move across, but they were also flat socially, that the trains were creating pretty pretty um, democratic towns across the upper Midwest. And that's what Lincoln was all about. Lincoln was a railroad lawyer for a while. He worked both for and against railroads, but he, he was largely uh, an admirer of what the trains were doing. And they were bringing huge numbers of people out to his state, Illinois, so they were helping him in, in other ways, too. And, and so I argue that he and the train were kind of running on the same track, that they were helping America to be a, a, a much better country than it had been. Now, this journey, this 13-day journey that you profile in the book uh, involved uh, a journey from Springfield, Illinois, where Lincoln had lived for years, to Washington, D.C., and that straight-shot distance was only 800 miles, whereas, whereas Lincoln's train ride in February 1861 covered 1,900 miles, you know, more than twice as long. So what, what was his thinking on why he stretched the trip out so long? Well, great question. Part of it was he didn't want to go through Virginia. He didn't really want to go south of the Ohio River, even though he grew up on the Ohio River. He grew up on both sides of it. He was born on the southern side in Kentucky. I grew up more in Indiana on the northern side. So he, he knew the Ohio River Valley very, very well. And I talk about how important that valley is to American history. But by the time he's elected, he's a representative of a, of a party that's mostly anti-slavery, not, not entirely, but mostly. So he doesn't want to go through the South because his presence will inflame the situation. And he, he desperately wants to keep those middle states in the United States, um, Kentucky, Missouri, Maryland, and Virginia is a middle state for a while until it joins the Confederacy. And he really wants to keep all of them in the U.S. as he's coming. So he thinks to to avoid going through them is probably a better way to keep them in the country than if, if he were to actually go through them. It's kind of a paradox. But President-elect is worried about going through his own state. So instead, he goes on this very winding northern route, but it, it brings some political advantages. It lets him go to all these state capitals where he, he has pretty important business to, to attend to. He's got to meet with governors and give talks to legislatures. And that's where he's going to get his troops. In the beginning of the Civil War, governors raised troops, not, not the president. So he needs to get every governor focused that they might have a need for soldiers. And he's also just shoring up his base. These governors are very powerful in the Republican Party, and they don't all think the same thing. Some are more conservative, some are more 
more anti-slavery, and Lincoln's got to work with each of them. So he does a lot of important political business on, on the road. Now, one of the many strengths of your book is your analysis of what it was that made Lincoln such a great communicator as a writer, as a speaker, and as a debater. So give us your account of the research you did to be able to describe his communication skills with such precision. Well, thank you for that compliment. I, I've been wor working on Lincoln's speeches for a long time. There was a time about 10 years ago where I wrote a couple articles on individ individual speeches, so I really began to break them down, and it, it helps to take some time with them. You know, it's hard to figure everything out the first time or two you're reading it. Um, and, I mean, I had the benefit of reading some great books about Lincoln's writing or, or his speeches. Um, Douglas Wilson, Harold Holzer, Ronald White, Gary Wills, all written great books on Lincoln as a writer. Fred Kaplan. Um, so, you know, I've read all of those books and thought about the things those, those writers said. Then I would say I deepened it a little more by reading his letters to people. And there's a wonderful collected works of Abraham Lincoln. It's a multi-volume edition that came out in the 1950s, edited by Roy Basler. And I read a fair amount in there. And I saw certain repeating patterns. You might say something in an obscure speech in the 1850s that he would say again in 1860 or 61. So I dropped down pretty deep in all of that. I, I think there's plenty of room to go deeper. I think someone will come along who sees things I, I failed to see. But I I really read it carefully, and I, I, I do think he's our greatest communicator. I don't think any other president has topped him. There's something very powerful about his brevity and that has been said by others. And I, I also say it, that the short words are effective and the modesty that he, he used up there, he never liked to call attention to himself, but it's not just brevity. It's something also, there's a musicality beyond that and a choice of some beautiful words that are not always short words. Um, dedicate this proposition is from Gettysburg Address. Those are not short words, but he, he mixes up a few interesting long words with a lot of short words, and somehow the overall effect is, is music, and there's never been anyone quite like him. Well, going back to really where your book begins, and that was with Lincoln's being elected uh, in November 1860, uh, he got elected, and then all of a sudden, uh, southern states so started seceding from the Union. So what exactly was it about his being elected president that triggered so many southern states to immediately secede? Why was there that immediate causal connection between those two uh, events? Well, that is also a great question, because it wasn't all Lincoln. Um, Lincoln is still pretty obscure. He, he surprised a lot of Republicans by getting the nomination. They didn't think he was going to get it. They thought, most people thought William Seward, senator from New York, would get it. But Lincoln is on record from his debates against 
Stephen Douglas and then also from his Cooper Union speech in New York as being against the extension of slavery. And the South was working itself into a kind of a frenzy that was arguing it wasn't enough to tolerate slavery. Slavery had to get stronger and had to go out west across the Mississippi. And really, it looked like they wanted it to become legal in in the entire country. And there were certain very specific points of friction, like if you were a southerner who owned slaves, could you travel through northern states and keep your slaves or would they be uh, taken from you by angry people and you wouldn't have your slaves back? And the South was trying to create a legal system that would be true in all of the states that would protect slave owners from ever losing their slaves. And Lincoln, uh, like a lot of people, didn't didn't like that. So the South, as it worked itself into an you know, increasingly angry position, just couldn't accept anyone who was going to try to limit the spread of slavery. So Lincoln was okay leaving slavery where it existed, but he did not want it to spread. And he wanted the Declaration of Independence to be respected. And that was a volatile position because it does promise something like human rights for all people. And whether that meant that someday African-American men and women while, while enslaved could be legally married or maybe someday could vote. No one quite knew where it was going, but the South just couldn't go there. Um, One of the tragedies, I think, of of our history is that the Southern leadership, the political leadership at that time, was pulling the South with it. I'm not sure the ordinary men and women of the South were as angry as the political leadership were. And I I read a fascinating book in, in my research that argued One reason they were so afraid of Lincoln is that they were worried Lincoln would reach the the equivalent of the the middle class or the working class of the South, that they would hear him and think he's actually talking pretty good sense. And that was threatening to the largely wealthy political leaders of the the Southern Democratic Party who were were leading the drive towards uh, an independent country. Well, along those lines, and and maybe this is the point you were just making, but an important point that you make in setting up your story is how many Southerners had substantial control in the federal government in the years leading up to 1861. So why did so many choose to have their states secede rather than attempt to exercise the power that they had in Washington, D.C.? Well, you're absolutely right. The South basically is running the country from George Washington to the election of Lincoln. There are few Northern presidents. They don't last very long, and they're not very important. I mean, John Adams is important as a founder. He's not a very successful president, neither is his son. Um, So the South is running. They they have most of the presidents. They have all of the two-term presidents. And they're very, very good at running Congress and the Supreme Court. And just the way Washington, D.C. runs, the committees, the people who work in, you know, the the doorkeepers, the um, sergeant-at-arms, the people who kind of run things in Washington, they're all Southerners. And so 
it's a good question. Why not just hold on and let Lincoln come and go? But they were worried about other factors, too. And I'm, I'm glad you asked the question because I didn't say this in my last answer, but there is a census in 1860, and it's beginning to be known as Lincoln is becoming elected that the census is going to tell everyone that there's huge population growth in the North, much more than in the South. So the North is going to pick up seats in the House. The Senate balance will stay about the same, but even there it's trending, the power is trending North, and in the House overwhelmingly it's going uh, North. And so the South just isn't going to have the same kind of power. And Lincoln also has the power as president to use the um, the patronage so he can hire a lot of workers in shipyards, building federal, building naval vessels, and control the inspectors of the ships that come into northern cities. And that's a lot of um, money. It was, you know, a, a way in which money flowed through politics by giving supporters certain jobs like that. And so the South realizes that they're not going to have the stranglehold on power that they had for the last 70 years, basically. Now, another uh, important point that you set up is that in 1860 and early 1861, there were plenty of slave owners and slaves in Washington, D.C. So what were the circumstances of their departure from the nation's capital once the Civil War began? Well, they're still there, and um, it takes some time. They, they do work out emancipation in the district in the um, cu- couple of years after Lincoln's arrival, but it's not immediate. So there was, there was a time in his first year in office where he's president, and there are still slaves in the District of Columbia. Um, that, that was a point of pride, well, in several ways. It was certainly a point of pride for Southern senators serving in Congress that they wanted slaves in the District of Columbia. And and people like Calhoun, the South Carolina senator, said that, that was, he admitted, it's really important that we have slaves around us. Um, but it's also important to individual slave owners who stay in D.C. or maybe are from Maryland or Virginia, right next door, and don't want to lose their slaves because it's a part of their household wealth. So extremely delicate issue for a long time, hard to solve. And and they solve it with compensated emancipation that pay slave owners. And finally, Congress, as it becomes more Northern, as the Southerners leave to go in the Confederacy, they're able to legislate slavery in the district away. But it took a, a long time. And even with the Emancipation Proclamation, that proclamation famously freed slaves where it couldn't really do it. Uh, it. It said that slaves in the Confederate states were free, but those states did not recognize Lincoln's authority. And Lincoln chose not to free the slaves in Maryland, for example, because Maryland was still in the, in the U.S., and so he didn't want to antagonize a slaveholding state that stayed in the U.S. So um, it wasn't until... Um, after his death, slavery finally is, is legislated away by the by the amendments. But um, it's it's a very slow moving process for most of his presidency. 
Now, over the course of this 13-day journey, Lincoln was speaking several times a day and often to very large crowds uh, in the tens of thousands uh, almost every day, it seemed like. And obviously, these were the days before there was any microphone. So how could a person speak loud enough for crowds in the tens of thousands to be able to hear him? You know, I don't quite know. I've wondered about that. He did it, and people apparently could hear him. What I've read about his voice is that it was both higher pitched, but also it carried. So people could hear it over a long distance. And that sounds a little bit paradoxical, but apparently you, you really could hear his voice pretty far away, but it was high pitched and twangy. He had a kind of Southern Indiana accent, which I think most of us would call a kind of Southern accent, which is surprising because he's the, he's the great villain to the South uh, of, of the 19th century. But he, I think spoke with something of a Southern accent. And that was one of the surprises I found in my research is that, so many of these states have a Southern as well as a Northern identity. So Illinois certainly has a Southern, the whole Southern third of Illinois was called Egypt and was very pro, pro South. And Stephen Douglas, the Senator uh, was very popular there and he was popular in the rest of the South, um, Southern Indiana, Southern Ohio, parts of Pennsylvania that are near Maryland there's a lot of Southern feeling in Northern states. So it's not quite as simple as to say there were blue states and red states. It was different from, from county to county and sometimes from town to town. Now, one of the most uh, dramatic aspects to your book is that throughout the 13-day train trip and then during his days in uh, Washington, D.C. before his inauguration, Lincoln's life was in constant danger, as many were as many were involved in different plans to kill him. Yet, as you say, Lincoln never showed fear. So, where did his death-defying courage come from? I don't know. I wondered about that too. Um, he'd seen death. His mother dies when he's a child, and his older sister died when he was a bit older and he had seen a lot of hardship in his life and one of the more moving stories of his young adulthood is his battle with um, I think we could call it deep depression some people might have even said mental illness and he he really went somewhere very dark a, a couple times in his young adulthood but he came out of it and I think Going there and coming out gave him a kind of toughness that was, was very help, helpful to him. And people would look at him. I mean, a lot of people described him in great detail because he, he had become so famous. And there were fascinating variations. They'd say, you know, the course of a minute or two, he'd look incredibly sad and then would tell a joke. And both things were inside him, this sadness and this... Um, humor, and I think he'd found some kind of way of almost self-medicating without without any medications, but humor and melancholy were in him in, in about equal degrees, and it gave him a real a real ballast as he, as he battled these difficult conditions. 
Now, in terms of these threats on his life, uh, and one uh, actual attempt on his life uh, with a grenade that went off in the train, was there any uh, consensus to where these scoundrels uh, largely came from? Were they people from the South uh, that were making their way to Baltimore to try to uh, bring it into his life before he was sworn in, or were there uh, disaffected uh, people in the North who, or perhaps the border states? Uh, were there people from all those different constituencies, or was it mainly one group who was trying to bring it into his life? I think it was a bit of all of the above, to be honest. Um, there are some very interesting books on the Confederate Secret Service or on other conspiracies, both in this time around his election, 1860 and 1861, and then also around 1864 and 1865, different time period. But um, some people may have been involved at both of those moments in attempts to, to kill Lincoln, um, we still don't really, we don't have certainty. You know, it's one of the great mysteries of American history is who killed Abraham Lincoln. We know John Wilkes Booth was involved, but was he involved in some of these plots around Baltimore in 1861? We don't quite know. He's from Baltimore, but he's not in Baltimore on the day Lincoln comes through. Um, there probably were local people who hated Lincoln in, in almost every stop that he came through, and they were not part of any big conspiracy. They just, just hated Lincoln. But it does appear that there were conspiracies. So there's this group of people in Baltimore who are, I mean, they're, they're from Baltimore, but they're also apparently receiving money from other parts of the South, and I'm not sure what parts, but there was apparently some coordination among some of the, there are Southerners who are leaving Washington to go start the Confederacy. There are some Southerners who stay in Washington. They're still acting senators from Southern states until their states secede. And they are conduits of information and maybe of money from the Deep South to Baltimore. And then there are other kinds of conspiracies. There was a group called the Knights of the Golden Circle which is an interesting group, and they were founded by a guy named George Bickley from Cincinnati. So that's not the Deep South at all. That's, in fact, a city that stayed in the in the Union. So it's very hard to figure out these lines of conspiracy. And I, I'm not a historian of the assassination. I'm, I've read a few books, but um, there are other people who know a lot more about it than I do. Okay. Well, for my final question, uh, Ted, uh, and it's really the ultimate question, and that is, why does this uh, time period and this train ride truly matter uh, in, in American history such that uh, give us your ultimate assessment of what Abraham Lincoln accomplished over the course of this 13-day trip? Well, I've been thinking about that, and I have two different answers. And one is just about being a good leader, he, um, he bravely went out there day after day, even when it was dangerous, and even in front of people who didn't like him very much, and he did his job over and over again. And he used calming language and factual language. You know, he brought 
he brought a good, clear message to people, and I think that is a, a form of leadership. And he impressed people, including a lot of people who had not voted for him in the North, came away from seeing him feeling they had elected a good person. But also, you know, we're so divided in America now, um, mainly between Democrats and Republicans, but there are other ways, cities and rural counties and older generations and younger generations. You know, there are just a lot of ways we're divided. And he was a unifier. He, he didn't want simply for the North to defeat the South. He wanted for it to be one country again. And he, he never admitted that it had not been. He never admitted that the Confederacy even existed. He just thought they were a rebellious movement and he considered that the United States was intact and all of those states were just temporarily not sending senators and congressmen to Washington. But he, he felt that the country was always intact and it became intact through his sheer force of will, but also his beautiful unifying rhetoric. And he kept giving annual messages, the equivalent of our State of the Union, and he kept giving beautiful speeches about all Americans being part of one country, and the Declaration of Independence was at the heart of his vision, and the Gettysburg Address is about the Declaration of Independence, and the second inaugural is about forgiving each other and coming back and being one family again, and that felt to me a little bit like the Odyssey, too, that we're, we're, we've been estranged, but we're coming back to be one family again, and I, I think that's still a powerful message in, in 2020. Well, Ted, I can't thank you enough. I'm so delighted that your publisher allowed this book to come out in early April while we're in the middle of the coronavirus and at a time when uh, America needs uh, a chance to enjoy good books uh, while we're being uh, shut in due to this situation. Uh, it really is a fantastic read, so I want to congratulate you on on your research and just the way you put it together and and the way you express this uh, uh, really tipping point moment uh, in the life of Abraham Lincoln. Well, thank you, Thomas. Thank you for your very careful reading and all your good questions. And I, I know how much you love history. It means a lot to me that you, you like the book. So thank you. Although there have been over 16,000 books written on Abraham Lincoln, obviously some of them are much better than others. And as I said in my review of Ted Widmer's Lincoln on the Verge, his new book is as good as it gets in the art of writing biography. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Until next time, remember, as my late great friend Bobby Bregan used to say, you can't hit the ball with a bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford Bowen McKinley & Norton. Thanks for listening.